And if you don't have your Bibles, in your program is an insert printed on two sides of the page, the entire ninth chapter of the book of Nehemiah. I am not going to read it all. <laughs> but it is for you to take home and to ponder this afternoon and to consider this amazing passage of God that He's given to us in this chapter. We come today to the longest prayer in the whole Bible. You think I pray long. Maybe you heard the story of D.L. Moody, I may have even told it here, who was preaching in Chicago one day, and after he finished his sermon, he turned to Brother Jones, and he said, Brother Jones, would you lead us in prayer? And Brother Jones started to pray, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. Ten minutes, eleven minutes, twelve minutes, and then D.L. Moody stood up and said, while Brother Jones finishes his prayer, let's turn to hymn number 200 and finish the service. And I, maybe sometimes you feel like this, but what is going on in Nehemiah chapter 9 is this crescendo to what we have called the great covenant renewal of Israel after the exile. And chapter 8 was all about the reading of the law which had been lost to them for a hundred years and for some for their whole lives and they hear the word of the law in chapter 8. Chapter 9 is the great response. It actually begins again on the 24th day of the month with the reading of the law. The scripture reading is for three hours. Three hours. It says for a quarter of the day and they measured the day by the 12 hours. So a quarter of that. Three hours of just reading the scripture. Then it tells us that they prayed for three hours and confessed their sins before God. So no looking at your watches today, my friends. That, that, was, that was a six-hour worship service that they held on that day. And, and so let me just begin and read the first few verses of this, and then we will reference it as we go through this chapter together. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. And on the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kedmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenanai. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. So far, the reading of the Scriptures. There are three points I want you to consider right on the sermon outline that is also in your bulletin. Three points as we come to the grand confession of sin, and you see them there, that in verses 5 and 6 we learn that confession and repentance begin with a clear acknowledgement of who God is. Point number two, that confession and repentance requires an honest acknowledgement 
of our own personal history, our sins, and what we call around here the sin beneath the sin. That's in verses 9 through 31. And then point number three will be that confession and repentance lead us to trust in God's mercy, which is found in the great covenant keeper himself. And we will see who that is. So point number one, that confession and repentance begins with a clear acknowledgement of who God is. And as I read verses 5 and 6, I ask you, what is the tone of this prayer of confession? Here's the second group of Levites. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, now here's the prayer, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord. You alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. How do they start? They begin with worship. And you know what? If you're half awake, one third of the time around here, we talk about the three C's of our church. And what is the first C? What is the first core value of the North Shore Community Church? What is the first thing that defines us as a people? It is the word celebrate. Celebrate. And we say that whatever else we do and whoever else we are, that the worship of God is our delight. And I hope that's true for you. You know, one of the marks of a Christian, one of the marks of a true Christian is that they actually delight in joining in with the praise of God. It's as though on Sunday mornings, when, when we have what's called the call to worship, it's actually a summons. It's a summons. It's an invitation, but it's a summons by the people of God saying, you and you and you, you over there, would you join us and lend your voice to the praise that God is due these guys, they said, stand up and praise the Lord. And, and I just want to tell you that I hope and I pray that that's us, that that's you. Could we agree together that whoever we might be and whatever we do, that we understand celebration is that first calling of our lives. That's the voice of heaven already, and we're being summoned into the joy of heaven together. And and uh, Derek Kidner, in his commentary on Nehemiah, says that this is an extraordinary moment because <laughs> these Jews are living in a city that is a wreck. So the city is barely habitable, right? They've just come back from exile. The city is barely habitable. They don't even have the dung gate repaired yet, remember? The city's barely habitable. 
And the poverty is severe. They are so poor. Remember, the, there, there were complaints just about our poverty. We, we, we have to sell our children into slavery. They are so poor. The city is not on the, on, you know, uh, the list that your travel agent is going to send you. And they have enemies encircling them. All around them are their enemies who wish for their destruction and who despise their God. Derek Kedner says, and then this little group of insignificant people, insignificant compared to the glories of Persia that overshadows them in that time, this insignificant group of people suddenly becomes the transcendent location for heaven to intrude onto earth. And they praise the living and the true God. And all their enemies who have their little gods of stone and wood are nothing because they say, you alone are the true God. You alone are the Lord. And you alone dwell, not as just in the heavens that you see with the naked eye, but in the heaven of heavens. And they understand. I love this verse. I'll tell you, I love this verse because I have so many friends who are atheists. And my atheist friends say things like, well, I only believe in the material stuff that I can see. I only believe in the atoms that are bouncing around in the universe. That's all there is. And I like to say to them, you know, I disagree with that. I disagree with that. The God that I worship, I am told, dwells in the heaven of heavens. And did you know that your, and here's a great word, I love this word, cosmogony, and its sister, cosmology. But the cosmogony, it comes from the word cosmos, the, the, the universe, and gamos, which means springing forth. What is your cosmogony? What do you believe about the universe as it exists? And I say, you know, in Nehemiah chapter, chapter 9, verse 6, we are taught that there is both the heavens and the earth, the stuff you can see, but we are also taught that there is the highest heavens or the heaven of heavens. And I say, did you know back in Genesis, there's this time where this dude Jacob sees this ladder and angels coming down and up this ladder, and where are they coming from? They're coming from the highest heavens through some portal, as it were, if you watch enough sci-fi movies, through some portal. They were coming and going, prefiguring the incarnation of Jesus Christ who came from the heaven of heavens into this earth. And I said, I don't believe that this universe is all there is. There's heavens and the highest heavens. And, then, and so they praise God for this reality. And then they praise Him that He sustains their life. And I get such a kick out of meeting people who think, you know, that they just sort of made themselves just sort of happened, and that they congratulate themselves, that their heart happens to beat every second. What keeps your heart beating every second? What reminds your diaphragm to exhale and then to inhale? Whose design was this? It's God. God who makes every beat of your heart, who gives you every breath, and these insignificant, poverty-stricken, despised people understand this, and they worship God. And they invite you, and I invite you, 
And this church invites you. Join in. Welcome to the worship and the celebration of God. Then point number two, that once you see God clearly, then you are somehow liberated to give an honest acknowledgement of your own personal history before God and your sins and what we call your sins beneath the sins. And what follows in verses 7 through 38, and again, it's very long, but some of you I know have never read the whole Old Testament, right? That's, a lo- that's big. There's a lot. The whole Old Testament's, you know, three, three quarters of the Bible. Here it is. It's, that's a lot. I tell you a secret. Nehemiah chapter 9 is the cliff notes for the whole Old Testament. And if you're not going to read the whole Old Testament, please take this sheet home. Read Nehemiah chapter 9 because you have the entire history of redemption summarized here. This is the cliff notes. And, and it took them, you know, uh, it might take a while to get through it all. I'm giving you the cliff notes to the cliff notes today. But very important, here as they are about to renew the covenant and be changed by God, they remember their, their personal history and their sins. Now, what do we find here? In verses 7 through 15, they retell the story of Abraham. Do you know Abraham? How God made a covenant with Abraham, and it was unilateral. That is, God made it with Abraham. The whole emphasis is on what God did with Abraham, and he says, and I will make your descendants like the stars of the sky. And then it moves on, and he talks about the exodus, and it's the story of how God heard the cry of his people and delivered them from under the cruel hand of Pharaoh, right? And took them through the Red Sea. And it tells of how God preserved them. And they got manna from heaven and water from the rock. And this is both physical and spiritual nourishment. We're actually told they were given spiritual nourishment because Jesus is the bread of heaven and and the water that flows from the rock. Christ is that rock. But they were given physical nourishment, spiritual nourishment through the whole 40-year wilderness wandering. And then he brings them to Mount Sinai. And there's this section in chapter 9 that talks about Mount Sinai. And there, the administration of the covenant of grace has this unique moment where the Ten Commandments are given and the covenant with Israel is established. And you recall that Moses comes down from the mountain and he tells the people, now you will be constituted as a nation holy to God. And in Leviticus 26, bear with me here, in Leviticus 26, he says things like this. Obey me, and your crops will flourish, and you will have safety on every side from your enemies. But disobey me, and your enemies will rise up against you. The sky will become like bronze, drought will come, and, and you will be vomited out of the land. And for the nation of Israel in particular, for national Israel, There is this works principle, blessing for obedience, cursing for disobedience. Then in verses 16 through 17, he starts talking about their sin. 
Listen to this. You can see it there in verse 16 in your handout. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commands. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. And what do we hear in this passage? We don't hear them just confessing the particulars of the sins, but we hear words like arrogance and stiff-necked. What does stiff-necked mean? Well, if you have a toddler, you know what stiff-necked means. Have you ever seen a a toddler when they don't want to do what, uh, they don't want to go where you want them to go? What do they do? They arch their back. Anybody ever see a toddler arch their back? No. And he says that's what happens to adults in their souls. It's not just the surface sins. He's saying the sin beneath the sin is the sin of pride, is the stiff-necked sin of rebellion and insisting, I am the captain of my soul. I am the master of my fate. Nope. And that's what happened to Israel, okay? And then verse 17 says, yet God is merciful and He is ready to forgive, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And you have then in verses 18 through 21 that God is a God of grace. And even though they were stiff-necked in the wilderness, God indeed brings them into the promised land and He showers them with blessing. And so beautiful, it says verse 23, you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. Now when you hear that, stars of heaven, what do you think about? It goes back to Abraham. Remember, hundreds of years ago, he promised Abraham, your descendants will be like the stars of the sky. And lo and behold, in the promised land, God was faithful to his promise, wasn't he? And God is faithful to his promises. And at the end of this section, verse 25, they ate and were filled and became fat. Let me tell you something. Nobody was overweight in the ancient world. Nobody complained about a spare tire in the ancient world. You wanted thick thighs. Why? Because you, that was a blessing. That was a blessing. And they became fat and they were happy. And God blessed them. Yet what did they do? Verse 26. Oh, my. What do they do once they are in the land enjoying all this blessing? And you see this steady pattern of rebellion. Nevertheless, They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Verse 27, Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, listen to this, You gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them into the hand of their enemies. And it goes on and on in this sad cycle. They are, and it's not in your outline, but back to Leviticus chapter 26, they are where the Lord said, if you will not listen to me, I will bring the sword upon you to avenge the breaking of the covenant. 
I will scatter you among the nations. Your land will be laid waste. And they are, like I said, I think it's a nice word picture. They are vomited out of the land. The land won't hold them because it's a holy land and they are unholy. Just as God told them he would do. And we are warned many times in the Bible. Many times in the Bible. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Sin is serious. Sin is serious. And yet the last line of this summary, verse 31, (laughs) it's amazing. Verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And even when God made the promise to kick them out of the land in Leviticus 26, verse 44, you just remember this, it should be yellow highlighted, he says, yet in spite of this, Leviticus 26, 44, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. So for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. How far have you fallen? How big a mess have you made in your life? Or maybe it's not a mess. Maybe your life is on the outside anyway. You're a pillar of the community. You're just so well respected and everybody thinks you are the cat's meow. They just think you're the finest of the finest. But you know, you know that inside you are stiff-necked. And you take the credit for your glory. Or maybe you're not playing that game. You're just honest. And you look back and you say, no, I've really made a mess of my life. I really have. Let me encourage you. God is gracious. God is gracious to you. Nevertheless, God says, I love my people. I love you. I will not forsake you, Jesus says. Oh, so many parents weep for years, longing for their children to come back to the Lord. Some of you have grandparents who pray for you, grandmothers, grandfathers who pray for you. And you've been wandering. You've been stiff-necked. Nevertheless, God did not give up on you. God will not give up on you. God summons you. God calls you back. God humbles you. He humbles me. But he is a God, it says in this passage, who is a covenant-keeping God, a covenant of love is in his heart for you. So now, my head hurts. Here's why. Because I don't understand How can God be both gracious and just at the same time? How can God punish sin and forgive sin? How? And this is where it's good to be born in the New Covenant era. It's good to be born now. Because we are told in the New Testament, in Galatians 3.13, if you're taking notes, you write down Galatians 3.13. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone hung on a tree. Sure, criminals are going to hang, but Paul surprises us, and he applies this to Jesus, and he says, Jesus is hung on the cross. He who had no sin. Where do we learn that? Well, if you're taking notes, write down 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. How could Jesus hang on the cross? I hang from a tree. He's, he's not a criminal, but God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And Peter, we read the verse earlier, 1 Peter 2.24. If you're taking notes, write down 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. How can God be just and forgive? And from this passage then, and I'll finish point two with just this, we learn that sin is serious, okay? Sin is serious, that God judges sin. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't just say, there, there, boys will be boys. He doesn't say that because he's pure and he's holy. He judges sin. But you also must learn that every punishment that was inflicted in the Old Testament was pointing forward to the punishment of Jesus Christ on the cross. And every execution of his wrath pointed forward to the voluntary substitution that Jesus made for you and for me. And I also must warn you, for those of you who say, no, I prefer being stiff-necked, I prefer my rebellion, and I would rather not have Jesus as my Savior, that every execution of judgment in the Old Testament also foreshadows not only the first coming of Christ, but what else? The second coming of Christ. And we are told that on that day, the great and terrible day of the Lord, He will execute His wrath on all sin, and punish all sinners who are found outside of Christ. And so the judgments of the Old Testament point forward first to the suffering of Christ and then second to the great judgment day that is to come. And these people, these people, all they know is that they have to cast themselves on the grace of God, and they do, and that's point number three. So they look to His grace in verses 32 through 37. And just verse 32, Now therefore our God the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us. And look at verse 34. He says, Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and the warnings you gave them. Hey, they had kings, and they had prophets, and they had priests. And they had dads, fathers who were responsible for the spiritual welfare of them. And you know what? They all blew it. They all blew it. But what do we know? Their kings failed, but there is the king of kings. Their priests failed. But there is the one priest, our high priest, Jesus Christ, who alone has clean hands and a pure heart. And their prophets all forgot God, 
But Jesus is the Word made flesh, and Jesus is the great prophet that Moses was told was to come in the future. There is a great prophet yet to come. Who is it we now know? It's Jesus Christ. And they confess, our kings, our princes, our priests, they they didn't keep the law, but we know now that Jesus is the Savior. And so, well... And so there is a summary of this. You know, the book of 2 Chronicles is parallel to, to uh, Nehemiah. And there's this verse in 2 Chronicles. It was, it was probably recorded around the same time remembering back. 2 Chronicles 7.14. You see the verse at the bottom of the backside of your Scripture passage. It says this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, And turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven. And will forgive their sin. And will heal their land. Are you called by his name? What does it mean today to be called by his name? It means to be a Christian. To be called by his name. The name of Christ. There's no other name under heaven. Are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? If you are called by his name... What should you do when you need to confess and repent? Well, call on Him. Humble yourself before Him. Pray, and then it says seek His face. And that means make Him a priority in your life. Make Him a priority in your life. Is He a priority? The priority in your life. That's what it means to seek His face. And then you turn from your wicked ways. Not because He's going to get you. But turn from your wicked ways because He loves you and He's your Lord and He's your Savior and you're His child and and you want to obey Him and follow Him and you will as the Holy Spirit gives you power to turn and follow Him. 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, okay? Okay? Anybody here says, man, preacher, you've really insulted me today. I don't have any sins. This is from the Bible. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, just as the people did in Nehemiah's time, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, John says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is the solution to the problem. Is he your solution? He's the solution for the Jews And he is the solutions for people the world over. Are you called by his name? We come now to communion. We come now to seek his face. To seek his face. To confess our sins, yes, but to seek his face. And to let him encourage us with the wine of forgiveness. And to strengthen us with the bread of heaven himself. 
This is a spiritual meal. It is a spiritual reality that when you come by faith, He meets you. He nourishes you. He forgives you. He makes you new. Let us pray. Our Father, I want to thank You for this moment that we have to confess that we are standing in the need of the Lord. And we pray that now we would feed on Jesus. We would humble ourselves before you, turn from our wicked ways, gossip, rebellion, selfishness, lust, greed, and certainly in me, Lord, wicked pride, self-righteousness, these things. We ask you, please, to forgive and to cleanse us from these things and, and others. And we thank you now that by faith we acknowledge that the, the cross of Christ is sufficient. Sufficient. What have I done? Your blood sufficient to cover that. And you welcome me back. You did not leave me alone. You did not let me go. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.